Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. As we know with COVID-19, we have spoken to many of the Irish immunologists, virologists, epidemiologists. The word ologist seems to be very popular at the moment, and we're speaking to all these different guests throughout the day. And here in Ireland, of course, there's a particular strategy by the government. At the moment, I'm a little bit lost as to what the strategy is. We did have a strategy at one stage, which was to protect the healthcare system and make sure that we didn't have it overloaded. That seems to be the case now, which is fine. In other words, at the moment, currently, there are only about 14 people in hospital in Ireland, or in and around that figure anyway. Certainly not uh, anything over the 20s mark uh, of recent times. Uh, very few people in ICU. Um, I think the figure in ICU is probably between, it's certainly not in double digits anyway. It's usually between five and ten people. Um, yes, our cases are going up. Our debt rate is very low. In the last three weeks, probably about seven people have died. Again, no deaths today, 56 cases today. But yet our government are very concerned. And we have experts who come on the radio and tell you all about it and tell you why they're concerned and tell you all about COVID-19. But there are other experts around the world, other immunologists, virologists, epidemiologists, and one such person is Beda uh, Stadler, who is a former director of the University Institute of Immunology at Innsbruck Hospital in Bern. Uh, it is an emeritus professor of immunology from the medical fa- uh, faculty of the University of Bern, and his speciality field is immunology, autoimmunity, and allergies. And he also joins me on the air tonight. Good afternoon to you, or good evening. Good evening, sorry. Good evening, Beda. How are you? Thank you. Very fine. Okay, by the way, I don't want to get your name wrong, and I always get pronunciations of names wrong, so I want to correct it right from the start. It's Beda, isn't it? Yeah, in English it's Bede. It was, uh, Beda is Latin for Bede, and Bede is an old Irish name. It, it was the monk who wrote the first uh, English uh, or Irish church history. Oh, right, okay, so there's a connection. There's an, that's good to know, there's an Irish connection. We, we might own part of you. That's always good yeah, to know. Yeah, the, the, Irish, the Irish were the ones who Christianized Switzerland at the time. All right, okay. Very good, very good. Okay, well, look, you've been you've been studying immunology for most of your life, and I know you talked in a previous right. interview about when you worked in the early days with, as you call him, Tony Fauci, who we all know as Anthony Fauci, who's the chief medical officer in the United States, when at the discovery of HIV, this is when you worked in America first. That's a long time ago now, isn't it? Right, right. That's uh, That was at the time when uh, lymphokines, as they were called, were deta- were. F- found first, uh, now they're called cytokines, and at that time there was just uh, interleukin-1 and interleukin-2, and they had at that time still different names, and as a student when I went to the States, uh, there was a, a meeting, there were about 50 people taking place, and that were all the people that were working with these strange molecules, and nowadays in the field of cytokines, there are several thousand scientists working on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's actually the most important thing right now for the death of people who have COVID. Okay, and, and you, you worked you worked with Anthony Fauci. Um, I'm, he has been very prominent in the news of late, obviously, being an advisor to Donald Trump at one stage, although they seem to have fallen out now. I mean, he has come out with some rather strange stuff over the last couple of weeks. I don't want to get too much into Anthony Fauci, but does it surprise you that he's now telling people to wear goggles or he has suggested that we should wear goggles? Does that does that kind of talk surprise you? Uh, yes, it surprises me. It, it makes me also sad. I mean, think of America, who was once uh, the leading country in science, uh, now, uh, such a country, all all this country has is give people the advice to wear masks, and uh, has nothing else to offer to its to its people. That that's really sad, actually. Mm. Okay, I mean, immunology in itself uh, has to have changed a lot, or changes on a daily basis. And I'm sure over the last, particularly, eighty years of science. You know, you could probably, you would have had 10 pages of papers probably going back 80 years ago. Now you have books and books of papers, of published papers in immunology. Is it hard to keep up? Yes, it's very hard. But but in the context of corona, we can, it's still enough to have the basic knowledge about 
immunology. Mm-hmm. Look, the most, even laymen could keep track. If, if you have a new disease that comes over the world, and then all of a sudden you see that large proportions, like all children below 10 years, do not become sick. No, no, no children ever die then everybody would normally say they're immune. And nobody says this. And the reason is because we have this super sensitive test PCR, which was never used before for diagnosis in such a broad context. How does that, okay, this is the PCR testing that we currently use um, to test people uh, and find out if they're COVID positive. So how does that test actually work? Does it identify a strand of DNA or or how does that actually work, that test? That test is measures uh, from the genome of of a virus or a bacterium or, or even a human, if you know the genome, then you select tiny little pieces and then you throw in uh, pieces before and after that. And then artificially you amplify this piece like in a sewing machine before that and after that, for, forward and backward until you have enough material so that you can measure it. So. You never measure the whole thing. You never measure the viral genome. You only measure tiny, tiny pieces of that. That is okay for measure for for knowing if you want to know where the tiny pieces are around of that genome. But the problem is it, it is misleading. People think if you measure if you can find a signal, it's equivalent to disease it's equivalent to infection and that's the problem because if you are immune then you fight the virus you win even against the virus well yes because the majority of people who've had it have recovered of course yeah yeah but during this time of winning against the virus the test will be positive and about Wherever you go, it will be written that you were infected, and that and that's wrong. So even now, people say, "Oh, the in, the, in, the infection times are much longer than thought, and so on." That's why at the beginning, people even said it may take 22 days until you get sick, and so on. Yes, it may take so long because you are immune and you fight for a long time, and some. And many people, sometimes they finally they lose against the virus. But as most people are immune, this uh, PCR test is not meaningful for telling whether somebody really gets sick. And or when not. you when you say for most people who are immune, and obviously if we get the virus, then our body has to fight it for a period of time, and that's how the test picks up. When you say we're immune. Where did we get that immunity? I mean, where did that immunity originally come from? Did it come from another virus that is similar to it? Or where did those antibodies come from? Yeah, the, the, the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is a beta coronavirus. Okay, so, okay, to clarify just for people listening so it doesn't go over their head, SARS-CoV-1 is the common cold, I assume. Right. It comes of a family of cold viruses that makes the common cold. It's around 20% of all the viruses that makes the, that make a cold are coronaviruses. And how many, and how many, how many, how many of, I mean, better, sorry for interrupting, but how many of those coronaviruses out there? Because when we're kids and as we grow up as adults, you know, we get, you know, the, a common cold many times. Are you telling me that each one of those common colds is a different strain of the virus? Because surely we would pick up immunity and stay immune to it. Yes, that, that means probably nobody in Ireland, nobody all over the world who ever had a cold is, uh, has not had a coronavirus. Everybody has seen them. And many people, especially the young ones, have recently seen them, and that's why they're immune. And that's why they may not have enough antibodies, neutralizing antibodies, to be completely protected.
protected. Mm-hmm. But they're protected enough so that they cannot be easily in, <clears throat> infected and become sick. And only those people who are, who are really old and have other diseases can become so sick that they may die. So, so that's now, again, mm-hmm. immunological basic knowledge. Women have a better immune system. That's why the coronavirus has more troubles infecting women. That's why at puberty you have the best immune system. You are on top, but after after puberty, you're over the hill. From then on, the immune system slowly deteriorates. If you are at puberty, your thymus, the T-cell immunity, has an organ the thymus has as the size of two hands almost. Mm-hmm. If you're 80, the thymus has the size of a, of a nut. You know, it's, it's a tiny. And that's why it, it just looks, you just look at the mortality statistics, then you know who is at risk. Okay, what do you and, think? And okay, at the start of all this, like everybody else, I was scared. I, and maybe you were too. I don't. You probably had a better understanding. Course, if, we, if, if, if we go back to say January, when when news from China was coming in first, and then February, and then when it started to hit Italy, I suppose we all got very concerned because the Italian hospitals were overrun. The WHO suggested there was a mortality rate of five percent, which is a good reason for us all to be frightened. That mortality rate doesn't seem to be at five percent anymore. What do you predict the mortality rate of of COVID nineteen is? It's probably two to three times higher than the common flu. Most people say it's 0.3% or less. So, and and now the newest information is because everybody has minimally a good T-cell immune response. That means herd immunity is everywhere pre-existing also. So that's the other reason why all these calculations, these models were wrong. And that's why you don't need probably 60 or 70% herd immunity. It may well be that in Sweden, herd immunity has already been reached all over Europe, where, where right now the cases increase a little bit again, but mortality does not increase. Now you can postulate, okay, Doctors have learned how to treat. Why do you why do you why do you think at the moment I'm looking at a trend across Europe? I can certainly see it here in Ireland that more well we're testing probably more people, which means we're going to get more cases anyway if we test. If we go looking for people with with, with COVID That's positive, we'll we'll find them. Uh, but I mean, why is it? It seems to be now younger people. When I say younger, under forty five years of age today, for example, seventy percent of cases were under forty five who are probably going to be reasonably safe, and they use the word asymptomatic quite a lot now. So why does it seem to be younger people affected now, where at the start it seemed to be the elderly who were, I suppose, the more vulnerable who were being affected by it? Yeah, there's a lot of literature about this, but publicly nobody talks about it. That's from all the new viral clades. You know, the two types of viruses that that spread from China, they're, they're... basically gone. Now we have new clades, new kind of strains of viruses that obviously are more infective in quotes, that that can jump easier from human to human, but are not so vulnerable, but are not so virulent. So that's also typical for every virus, the, the typical cold viruses that's true for the flu, that's true for adenoviruses, for rhinoviruses, for coronaviruses. They be- become less and less harm- harmless, uh, mm-hmm. less harmless over time. But they, they jump easier from man, from, from, from one man to, to, from one human being to the other. So are you so are you saying as as time goes on the virus gets weaker is is that what you're suggesting? Yes, exactly. Okay. And that's true for all these ty- these types of cold viruses. That's the way they behave. And that's what happens usually right now. That's why 
you see less hospitalizations and less and le- and less um, people who die, but you see more uh, people who are positive. Even so, if of course pe- all over the place people are testing more, but even at a constant rate of testing now in many uh, in many uh, countries, it, there is a slight increase. In addition, for example, in Africa now, the same phenomenon can be seen. There's a, there's a lot, uh, lots of, in, in, but the, almost no deaths. Yeah, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say it was surprising because when when the virus hit Europe and it was at its peak, everybody, including you know experts, so to speak, inverted commas, were saying when this hits the African continent, this is going to be disastrous. Because they live so close together, they're in smaller communities, yeah. uh, there's a lot of poverty. Um, but in fact, it didn't. Uh, when I say it didn't, obviously it killed a lot of people, but not half as many as people expected to. And it seems to be primarily the age group in Africa that got it were younger people um, yeah. who, who will survive it, of course. The medium age there is, uh, is 20 to 30, between 20 and 30. And here in Europe, the medium age is 45 or so. So, and, and especially in Europe, those countries who who have many elderly, like Italy and Spain, they were hit harder than than others because they had these elderly risk groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, uh, you do you do accept? I mean, there are people out there who try to say, well, COVID nineteen doesn't exist. It's just like the flu, for God's sake. It's not dangerous at all. But you do accept it is dangerous. And it is it is, it, it is oh, killing yes. elderly, well, particularly elderly people, vulnerable people. Yeah, just like you said at the beginning, I was also scared like like hell. I mean, I was asked here by our government to become a member of the of the expert group, and I live up in the mountains. And I and I said to the government, "No, I'm not coming. First, I'm fat. Second, I had some lung problems, uh, uh, emb- and lung embolism just recently." I said, I'm not coming. I'm risk group. And third, if, if some journalist, uh, I'm, I'm known in Switzerland, if they see me walk into these expert groups, they say, why does this uh, fat guy walk in there? <laughs> why is he not hiding somewhere? Yeah, why is he not cocooning somewhere? Yeah, he, he should stay home. You know, that's the rule now. <laughs> okay, but okay, what, what they did in Europe, with the exception of some countries like Sweden, etc., and many people also are, are all looking at Sweden, uh, some experts are looking at Sweden hoping they fail because it'll prove them right, where others are hoping they're successful. But in relation to what we did in most countries, including Ireland, who probably had one of the stricter lockdowns, Spain, Italy, the United Kingdom, um, these kind of uh, the idea of when I say lockdowns of telling people not to leave their homes, of not allowing people to mix together, of not allowing people to go to work. Do you think that works, or did that make a difference? Because according to the government, it did. Did it make a difference? No, I mean you can look wherever you want. Look at Belgium. Belgium is the country who has the most death per million. Uh, inhabitants or look right now to Argentina in Argentina they have the longest lockdown in the world since four months strict lockdown you cannot leave your your home except for important shopping or going to the doctor and you must wear a mask they have the lot they've also been introduced masks a long time yes. ago yes and if you look there, there for some time there was nothing now there is a Deep increase in cases and in death cases. It's, it's horrible what's happening there. So if a lockdown would work, Argentina would be safe, the safest place in the world, you know. So whatever measure has been taken, I cannot see any correlation to whatever has, uh, has had happened. My argument was from the beginning Try to protect the risk group, the vulnerable people. And everybody, whenever you said this in public, people would say, forget it, this is not possible. No, nobody ever even tried to think about this, except Sweden. Sweden said and apologized to their own people, said, we apologize 
for not having protected our people at risk. And we will try harder to do so. Well, it was the same here in Ireland. 51% of the people who died in this country uh, were in care homes. Yeah, the same thing in Sweden. But Sweden, to my knowledge, is the only country who minimally apologized to the people. All other countries just just didn't, neglected this, and they even didn't care, and didn't care to apologize. And so, so you know, if, lo- <coughs> if, if lockdown, okay, sorry, sorry for interrupting, but if lockdown is didn't, in your view, makes no difference, or you don't believe it makes a quantable difference, what is the no. alternative? Is it to go on as life as normal, but with, obviously with better hygiene, washing your hands? I'm sure you wouldn't disagree with, you know, washing your hands and I suppose somewhat keeping your distance and maybe not having large assemblies of people. But So what is the alternative? I mean, how do we fight this or do we just wait and it'll go away? We have to, if we realise now that most, that large proportion have a, be- a residual immunity, then we have to think about spreaders who might be in contact with risk people. And then we have to, to see how can we, how can we make uh, that these spreaders are quickly uh, reach herd immunity. So we, we and uh, as soon as vaccines come up, then we have to show the most important thing is that vaccines, when they come up, they will probably be of no use for the risk patients. That's the same thing with the, the flu vaccine. For many years, I always said in Switzerland, they said the risk patients should get vaccinated, should become vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I said that's not fair because they are risk patients because their immune system is down. So if you ask them to be vaccinated, you ask somebody who has the, no capacity to respond against the vaccine because he has no, he, his immune system is down. So if one of these vaccines is so good that even the risk patients would show a good response, that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, one would immunize exclusively and first the risk patients. And when do you think, from what you've seen and read in the news, and I believe there's 170 candidate vaccines around the world at the moment, but in your own opinion, how long do you think we may have to wait for us a successful vaccine to be available to the general public? That's a question for the regulators. I mean, I'm, I'm living here on, in, in the Alps, the Swiss Alps, but if I look down in the valley, at the bottom down is Lonza, and that's where they produce for Europe the, the RNA vaccine for Moderna. Mm-hmm. And that's what people don't realize is that this RNA vaccine, you can store it at room temperature. It doesn't need this, uh, and you can produce it much simpler than protein vaccines, the, the normal vaccines. So they could, within a couple of weeks, make incredible amounts, incredible numbers of doses. Could they, could they make 8 billion doses? This is the thing, isn't it? That's what we need. Yeah, they, they could make probably extremely high amounts. And, and now the question is, how do the regulators in America treat it? Mm-hmm. And how good is the phase 3 controlled? And what nobody knows really is, do they make challenge tests in America or not? In, in, in Europe, uh, the mo- most ethical committees would not allow challenge tests. And, and if America is doing challenge tests, this abbreviates, uh, of course, phase three. Phase three is, is uh, at the moment, in, in all over Europe, you don't have enough cases for doing any tests. 
there's not enough patience to, to test it. So you have to go in all these underdeveloped countries now, right now, which makes it even more in, in other words, there's no point in me testing a vaccine because there's not enough people I'll be in connection with who actually have COVID-19 in the first place. So the likelihood of me being in contact with a, a COVID-positive person are slim. Yes. Okay, so the, the, difficult to test I mean, it really, isn't it? Which country in Europe still has enough cases to do so? And are, are you concerned, by the way? Are you, are you concerned about... I know some people are referring to it as a case-demic and not a pandemic anymore in Europe because we're seeing a massive increase in cases but a huge decrease in mortality and a huge decrease in people in ICU and hospitals, etc. But does it it concern you when you see the increase in cases? No, not at all. Because if next year somebody develops uh, a PCR for the flu, and, and we spend millions and millions to test everybody for the flu, then we will see the same numbers for the flu. And then what, how do we react then? And if, if at the same time we make a PCR for the adenovirus and the rhinovirus and so on, then probably 50% of the population will be positive for viruses. So what do we do then? In other words, if we reacted the same way to other viruses as we did with this one, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Okay, but going going forward, do you believe that this virus, similar to influenza, could be seasonal? It will be seasonal, of course, because it always was seasonal. It is a is it is a beta coronavirus. It was always there. It only has a couple of mutations. It, it's only uncertain. Play it. Over large proportion of the genome, this beta virus, this beta coronavirus, is identical to SARS-1, and is also identical to other coronaviruses. It's not new, you know. That, that's it's the beta coronavirus. Okay, so it's just but a kind of new, improved version. So, when do you believe? Yeah. Well, then, if indeed it is seasonal, would you predict then there would be a second and third and fourth wave? And how long do you perceive this this particular virus or this improved version of coronavirus as you refer to it? How long do you believe it'll be with us? Could it be with us ten years, thirty years? Yeah, if it if it gets weaker, then uh, the, the risk persons have died out mostly already. Then it it, it it will it will it will just produce cases, but no more deaths. But we'll always have new risk people, won't we? As people get older and as people become unwell, we will always have new risk people. Yeah, but 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 we will not have a mortality greater than the normal mortality, you know. So what should countries do? I mean, it seems like a runaway train at the moment when it comes to the world's economy. And I know that's not your speciality. But we have, you know, closed down countries and destroyed economies all over the world. We've taken planes out of the sky what what do you suggest if you were advising a government at the moment? Uh, let, let's take Ireland, for example. Let's say you were advising the Irish government and they've seen, we went down at one point, and I don't know whether you've watched Ireland and how we've dealt with this. We've had 1,700 deaths, roughly over 25,000 cases. And we went from having, you know, 30 and 40 deaths a day uh, on average down to like practically zero now. We have maybe one death every week or so. Right, thankfully, okay, and uh, we have our cases have gone up now between sixty and two hundred over the last uh, week or so. So, what yeah. what advice? And what they're doing now is they're doing local lockdowns, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So, we have counties or regions in Ireland. So, what they're doing is closing down the regions that have the highest number of cases. I I, I would just su- suggest to open up everything and forget the whole thing. And is that is that a big risk to do that? I mean, you say yeah, well, you say that, and, and but what happens if that plan? And, and I, I I agree with you that I don't probably agree with the current strategy because it's damaging going forward. I mean, it, it causes huge anxiety and stress and uh, for people and despair. You know, and people go into poverty for losing their jobs. But the alternative of not doing anything is also a risk, isn't it? Yeah, the government should clearly say. How many people are dying now because of COVID-19 directly mm-hmm. or indirectly 
because they are not treated, wrongly treated. Undiagnosed. In other words, the, the collateral damage, is it now bigger or the same or smaller? I would predict so, it's probably bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So, in other words, if the collateral damage right now is bigger than COVID-19 by itself, then logics would say just forget it and open up and apologize to the people. And what about children? I, I, you know, I, as you know, I have a talk show and we have people call into the show. And yeah. people, I mean, the media have done a wonderful job at frightening people, I have to say. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to think I'm a little bit fairer than that. I'd like to give everybody every side of the story. But what do you say to people who are afraid to send their children back to school? And these are little 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds, afraid to send them to school, that they might get COVID-19 and they might be that one in eight million children who gets very sick, according to the statistics in the United States, you're more likely to be hit by lightning. But they're worried their child would be that one child. What do you say to, to people who are stricken by fear? That uh, what might happen to the child by staying at home, the risk may be greater than going to school. As is what is absolutely true that all over the world, I do not know of any child below the age of 10 that has died because of the coronavirus. So, I mean, and and children older than 10, uh, if they have died, usually uh, you do not find the pathology report. So in other words, yeah, there were probably children which with an immunodeficiency or some other disease, this can also happen, yeah. But what is true is that babies, young children, and uh, pregnant women every year die because of the flu. And this should be repeated on and on, that the flu on and that's in Switzerland and in Ireland probably the same thing. If only 20% of the people go and vaccinate against the flu. Even though we know it kills 600,000 people every year. And even we know mm-hmm. that babies, mm-hmm. newborn, and children under 10 years and pregnant Women. So in other words, what you're saying is, although COVID-19 is dangerous and you're not denying that, it seems to be well, age, it seems to be ageist and it seems to be um, avoiding children, whereas influenza is much more dangerous to children. COVID-19, uh, the, the, this coronavirus is dangerous, but it's dangerous for another group of people. It's not children that go to school. It's Oh, it's people above 80. But can I see the argument being used? And when you say that to people, and particularly, for example, our schools, they're, they're, they're hoping to open our schools for the first time in six months in about two or three weeks' time. And the argument from the unions representing the workers and the, the teachers is that they want a safe environment to work in and that although children might be safe, they can then pass it on to teachers who in turn could pass it on to vulnerable people or vice versa. So, in other words, they're concerned about children not so much dying, I suppose, but passing it on. Yeah, but then you should say, okay, every every teacher has the right to to think and to talk in this direction if he can prove that the last 10 years he was immunized against the flu. In other words, if you if, if was that concerned, yeah. But but in, in saying that, some people, some kids go back to vulnerable families, I suppose, as well. But in relation to just, just finally, before I let you go, where we're going to go from here, because it's a very confusing world we're living in, particularly for you as an immunologist. Uh, as, you, as we all know, the immune system was probably the last thing to develop um, through evolution in the human body and probably the most important part of our human body. Um, 
Where are we going to go from here? Do you think this is going to happen every time a new virus comes along? And will a virus eventually eliminate mankind? That's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> do you think it'll eventually? Do you think a virus will eventually eliminate us? <laughs> no, no. I think uh, first of all, there's lots of viruses whom we uh, we have to thank because. They have integrated in our genome, and uh, uh, and they uh, we have to thank them because they have given us new new <laughs> new capabilities for making certain uh, even vitamins, for example. Mm-hmm. Then there are vitam- Then there are viruses who uh, have attacked us uh, and have uh, yeah. Not harmed us. Then there are viruses who who are helpful for for our biome for the digestion and so on. Furthermore, there are viruses who who help us for our nutrition. So there is a, there is a tiny tiny small amount of viruses which is actually dangerous for us. But this is a tiny, small amount of viruses, which uh, which usually we can fight off with our immune system. And I, uh, yeah. most of the time, we learn to live with these viruses. And uh, look, we have we have learned to to live with with the pox virus. I mean, <laughs> we have. Mm-hmm. We have defeated most viruses so far. But we do, but we do have good treatments for many viruses like the pox. Uh, we do, we do, and the same with HIV. Now we have a treatment for HIV. It's not a cure, but it's a treatment. Uh, we do have any treatments, but the problem with, I suppose, COVID nineteen is they're saying we have no treatment for it. Yeah, but but look, it's 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 around only since last year, end of last year. That's a short time. And and already now in in Europe, basically almost nobody is dying anymore. So it it looks like that it's almost gone. There is only a hype still whether there will be a second wave. And there was only a second wave so far observed for the Spanish flu. So second waves are not typical for a while. And when when you hear people comparing this to the Spanish flu... What do you say? That's totally ridiculous. Forty million deaths to to compare this to COVID nineteen is uh, yeah is, <laughs> is ridiculous. Really ridiculous. I, I, I actually, just finally on the last note before you go, the the big conversation in Ireland of of the last week is face masks. Um, they've made face masks now mandatory in all public places, shops, um, public transport, obviously, where people are very close together with a quite a hefty fine if you don't wear one. Um, I mean, there's a huge argument between immunologists, scientists, virologists, epidemiologists and everybody else who gives us advice on a daily basis as to whether they work or they don't work. Do you believe face masks are of any benefit whatsoever? No, I can't believe it because... Face masks are a very good instrument for the surgeon so that uh, his beard, (laughs) his skin uh, parts don't fall in my open wound. I hope that the surgeon is wearing something like this. I hope that uh, good such personal protection is, is of a much better quality is worn by people who have to work with Ebola virus and so on, but for the general public to wear this, this this just gives them the the wrong uh, impression to be safe, and then they just stay closer together and it it so is. So in other words, it gives you a false sense of security. It gives you a false sense of security, and and it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's it's. Uh, and why and why do you why do you think most countries in Europe seem to be and and people like yourself 
who have studied immunology or uh, virology or epidemiology or and and there go people who before would have said no to face masks are now on TV and radio telling everybody to wear them. I mean, what do you say to your colleagues around Europe? Uh, who many of you you would have studied with and you'd be very familiar with. You would have met them at conferences and shared ideas and thoughts. What do you say? Are, are you uh, disappointed in them? I think they are, they are disappointed and they are desperate. They have given so many... They, they provided first models. They provided so many tips what to do and, and they said how it's going to be and nothing worked. No lockdown, nothing worked. So they're desperate, and now everybody starts to believe. It, it has become a belief system. Almost like a religion. Like a religion. So now everybody just believes in, in masks, you know. So for me, it is a religious question. And, uh, yeah. So in other words, in other words, they're believing in something that you believe there is no scientific evidence to show that it'll actually yeah. make a difference. And you just tell, go in public and, or on Facebook and you say masks are a joke or whatever. You will, you will attract so many haters you won't believe. You know, the people try to kill you if you say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for so many reasons, uh, you know, the, the, those it's something to hold on to on this belief. That's yeah, and on the, on the human side of all this, I think what's been very sad is the idea that people are turning on each other. And, you know, and, you know, some people are putting videos up on social media of, say, people in a pub or in a restaurant, not social distancing and, you know, and saying they should be reported to the police and people are twitching and exactly, opening yeah. their blinds and looking out the window at their neighbours to see what they're doing. And it has turned people against each other. Yes, and that's that's very sad, and that's uh, what daily that that makes me really sad. And you know that just a, a little detail, but but it's the des- desperation and from all the sides, the the ones that make the regulations, the governments, and the people who are truly uh, afraid of the whole thing. And I understand this. I mean, most people have no idea what a virus is. And they even think that a virus is a living organism. Virus, viruses don't live. They are only half a living organism. By itself, they cannot live, you know? It's, it's, we always called viruses just, it's bad news in a protein coat, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, <laughs> uh, and, and I would never, I would never put the piece of paper in front of my nose, uh, nose and mouth, and and knowing how big a virus is, for me it's clear. It's like it's like a, a football goal, and then you throw a ping pong ball at it, and you believe <laughs> that's that a good analogy. The, yes, a good analogy. The ping pong ball is hold is hold back. By the football net, you know, so, <laughs> you know, it's a choke. Okay, so you just you just do not believe it works. Well, look, it's been a very interesting conversation. Um, obviously, quite different to what other people have said, and and you know, and you are equally as qualified, uh, if not more, in some sense of the word. Uh, and I really enjoyed the conversation. It was nice talking to you, and I appreciate you coming on the air and talking tonight, Ben Stadler. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go, Ben Stadler, um, who is a immunologist at the University of the Med- well, he was former immunologist at the Medical Faculty at the University of Bern, also uh, immunology at the Insel Hospital in Bern, and an emeritus professor of immunology, uh, allergies and autoimmunity. So the man knows what he's doing. He studied all his life for immunology, so he certainly has a good sense of what is going on, and. I find it bizarre when I listen to Beda talking and, and the way he talks about, for example, he doesn't have any faith in the current testing we're doing. He believes um, it gives false positives and false negatives. <clears throat> but I find it astonishing to listen to him and then listen to somebody else that may be an immunologist in this country with a completely different view of it. And I don't know why we all can't get together, you know, and people like Beda and people like, say, Luke O'Neill over here and other immunologists from the UK and, 
get together, sit around a table and crack it out and, and come to some sort of an agreement that I'm sure they could all learn something from each other. But instead, they all disagree with each other and lives are at stake. When I say lives are at stake, not just from COVID-19, lives are at stake from people losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, losing everything they've ever worked for. And he makes a really good point about if you look across Europe currently at the moment, the mortality rate has gone down. And I mean way down. Here in Ireland, for example, thankfully, maybe one, two people at most a week are dying. That's sad for those two people, by the way. But when you consider in a week in this country, on average, probably about seven or eight hundred people die anyway. Every single day, 89, is it 89 people die in this country every single day. We have to accept that human beings do die. And we have to accept that, you know, sometimes viruses are around us. Other viruses have been around for years and have killed us. And it is a risk of being a human being. That's part of the risk. There are many things we could do in this world to stop people from dying. Like, for example, should we ban smoking completely? Why, why don't we do that? We've known about how it kills people for the last 20 or 30 years, if not more. So why not just ban it? Would that not be a good idea? No, because we allow people to choose to kill themselves. If that's what they want to do, when I say choose to kill themselves, they know they will do themselves a lot of harm by smoking. I smoke, for God's sake. Alcohol destroys our kidney, our livers. We drink too many, of it, too much of it. We don't ban alcohol. Jumping out of a plane with a parachute on you. Rock climbing. All these things are a risk to life. But we don't ban them. Driving over five kilometers an hour in a car is a risk to life. Hundreds of people every year die and thousands are maimed, injured, lose a limb, end up in wheelchairs. But we don't ban it. We don't reduce the speed limit to five kilometers an hour because we've established that there's a risk to life, to living. At the moment, if we continue doing what we're doing with the restrictions that we're doing at the moment, we're just surviving as human beings. Yes, you can say holidays are not important. Going on a plane is not important. You know, all these things are not important. But they are important because they're part of our life. When I saw the video over the weekend of the young people in that bar Berlin, yes, you know, currently from what we're going through, you could argue that they were being irresponsible. But you know what? They were young people. We all did that as young people. And I understand these are different times. And I, yes, appreciate they should have been more responsible during this time. But they're young people. And when we were young, we had the privilege of having a good time and having a barm and pour tequila or whatever it is into our mouth. And we thought nothing of it. We just accepted that was part of the norm, that we could do these things. And I feel so sorry for young people now. You know, people, kids between 18 and, say, 25 Part of that growing up is to, you know, party, have a good time. And they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to go out. They need to escape. They need to get have an escape. And they're still doing it anyway. And we're condemning them for doing it. We're condemning people for being human beings. I absolutely encourage everybody to follow the government guidelines. And until the government guidelines change, there's nothing more we can do about it. Because at the moment, they believe they know best. There's other educated people around the world who would completely disagree with them. And whether I disagree with them or you disagree with them, it's irrelevant. They're the government guidelines. And I encourage you to follow those guidelines. But in saying that, I think we have to accept that we are human beings. All right? And human beings are not isolated creatures. We don't live on our own. We don't live in tiny bubbles of people. We go out. We go to gigs, we go to bars, we go to pubs, we go to events, we enjoy the interaction of other human beings. And if we don't have any, that anymore, we're not living really, are we? We're not enjoying our lives. We can do that temporarily. And I think we all did a very good job. And I think the biggest problem, and I've tried my desperately to get it, the Minister for Health on the air, Stephen Donnelly, he, he was on the air quite a lot with me before he was Minister of Health, but unfortunately we can't seem to get at the moment. We have written to him on numerous occasions. I would like to ask him, what's the plan? What's the strategy? There doesn't seem to be one at the moment. It's kind of make it up as we go along. We knew at the start what the strategy was. Let's not put pressure on the healthcare system, doctors and nurses. Do you remember we were out clapping every Thursday? That was the plan. Flatten the curve. Crush the curve. 
That worked. Thankfully, there was never really great pressure on the healthcare system. Thankfully. We built pop-up hospitals. They were never used. The same in the United Kingdom. They were never used. Now the healthcare system is under no pressure whatsoever. None. If you want to talk about pressure in the healthcare system, go to the flu season in November and December. Then you'll see pressure. Where they're dealing with hundreds of people. So at the moment, there's no pressure, thankfully, on the healthcare system. And yet we're still doing this. Well, counties are doing it at the moment, and there's still some level of restrictions across the community. So what's the, if people knew, I think the, pe- the people of this country would have more faith in the state and the government if they, if they gave us a bit more of an insight as to what they were doing and what the plan is. Is the plan to get rid of the virus completely? Because that's not a plan. The best immunologists and virologists in the world tell you that's a silly idea. You can't get rid of it. Because if we get rid of it from this country, unless we build a wall around the country and we keep everybody as a prisoner here for the rest of their lives or until this virus goes away, could last 20, 30 years, well, that's not going to work, is it? So what is the plan? Somebody says, Niall, you're talking out of outside your mouth. I know you have to bend uh, to the authority, but they are leading us all to doom and you know it. Well, can I just say, I work on a radio station um, and obviously I have to tell you to follow the government guidelines. So that should be answer enough for your texts, all right? Um, the point I, I'm trying to make is is that I think people would have more faith in the state if we knew what the plan was. We did know what the plan was, but now the plan is going in so many different directions. Yes, more people have COVID-19 now than two weeks ago, and that's fair to say. But it seems that way because we're testing more people. Mind you, if you were to believe better what he says... He's saying the PCR testing doesn't work properly anyway and it picks up a common cold that you might have had two or three years ago. I don't know. I'm not an immunologist. I can only go by what they tell me, just like you. So what is the plan? Are we going to test more people? Because if we're going to keep testing more people, we're going to find more cases. As he rightly pointed out in the interview, if we decided to test tomorrow for other viruses, like, say, the flu or SARS-1, which is the common cold, we would find thousands of people with those viruses. And we'd have loads of cases. And would we do the same thing? I don't know. So what's the plan? I want to know what the plan is. Is there a plan? Because there doesn't seem to be. It just seems to be we're rolling along, just doing the same thing every day. Are we going to live with this virus? If we are, can we all go back to normal and just protect ourselves and protect the vulnerable? Are we not going to live with it and get rid of the virus completely and then never leave the country? Just tell us what the plan is and let us digest it and see what we all think of it. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits.